Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do every time we come together, to be with us right now here in this place. Speak to us in this time as we consider your command that we be just. Please make my words to be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So this is the third of our series on a biblical worldview, our series on identity, sexuality, and justice. This morning we're going to be talking about justice. I'd like to reiterate as we start why we're doing this class, even if I might feel personally under-equipped at times to speak authoritatively on these issues, the world outside feels no reluctance to speak on these issues, whether the speaker is equipped to do so or not. So there is a lot of talk about sexuality, identity, and justice out there, and I find very little of it helpful. Even less of it is biblical. So it's incumbent upon me as your pastor to teach you God's good news and good plan for these things. This week, his good plan for justice. And we're doing this, teaching you God's plan so that when you're asked to say something, you don't just default to the last thing you heard on the news. Instead, you can found a response on the word of God so that in obedience to the calling of Ephesians 4, we are equipped for ministry in the world. Like last week, we have blank question cards and a place in which to put them. Rather than try to answer questions off the cuff, at the end of our time this morning, I'm going to collect the questions as I have been and devote next week to answering questions on all three of our topics. That way, I'll have the opportunity to give the questions the thought and research that they'll no doubt deserve and require. Do also avail yourself of our reading list. There are more copies there. It's also online with these recordings. Um, As I have been saying throughout this time, there are many thinkers writers and theologians who are more thoughtful, who have studied more deeply, and who are more effective communicators about these issues than I am. Please take advantage of their work, just as I have, in preparing what I'm sharing with you in these classes. So, as we have been doing throughout these last weeks, let us get ourselves situated in the Bible. This is a reading from Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The Lord requires us to do justice. Injustice, therefore, is sin. Okay, then, if justice is required and injustice is sin, how do we know what is just? Where do we look? Well, as Christians, we must look to the word of God. We look to the Bible. Now, as we've been saying during each of these presentations, if we actually believe in God, that changes everything. If there actually is an almighty God who has spoken into the world, then what he has to say about justice must carry the day. But there are actually many visions of justice, some even that sound really good, that are not, in the final analysis, biblical. So it will be important for us, as we consider what justice is and what God's good plan for justice is, it will be good for us to distinguish between biblical justice and other kinds of justice, which in turn, which for the sake of shorthand, I'll call social justice. Now, it's worth noting here at the beginning what we're not going to try to accomplish this morning. What we're really looking at today is two competing worldviews. And that means we're going to have to look at the fundamental assumptions of each one. To that end, what we're talking about this morning is the vocabulary and the assumptions of justice conversations. We can't talk about things like reparations for slavery or policing policy or affirmative action or graduation rates or anything like that until we can agree on a shared language with which to have the conversation. And that's the problem that we're going to find, that social justice language and assumptions just don't square with biblical language and assumptions about justice. I think the best place for us to start is a simple definition of biblical justice and then social justice, and then to try to flesh each one out a little bit. Now, as I'm sure you're already feeling inside of you, social justice can be a bit of a slippery term. After all, all justice is social. Thaddeus Williams notes that no one is concerned about justice if they're stranded on a deserted island. All justice is social. So I'm using social justice here as shorthand for what is sometimes called critical social justice or social justice theory. Let's turn our attention to those definitions. I have a good friend who says that while biblical justice can be defined as impartiality, social justice, again, standing in for critical social justice or social justice theory, social justice is actually, he says, a studied partiality. Here's what I mean by that. In James chapter 2, the apostle calls us to, quote, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, 
and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If you show partiality, says James, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The same command is true in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 says that you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. That's biblical justice, impartiality. On the other hand, social justice, as it is commonly thought of in our current day, is actually not interested in impartiality. It employs, as my friend said, a studied partiality to figure out where iniquities exist and attempt to right them. As justice theorist Ibram Kendi has said, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. And the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. We'll look in more detail at how social justice employs this kind of studied partiality in a second. Now we should note, as we get started, that the socioeconomic example that we find in James and Leviticus about rich and poor is only one kind of partiality. There exists partiality based on race and on gender, and on physical attractiveness or ability, and on a host of other things. Partialities like this are real. They do exist, and they are sinful. And we sinners are prone to them. Even Christians, even within the church, we must not, as we talked about at the end of our time last week, pretend that these sins do not exist, or repress them. We confess them. Wherever we find them in ourselves, mortify them in the flesh and give them over to Jesus for his redemption. So as I make this argument this morning for biblical justice over against social justice, I am not arguing that injustice doesn't exist or that the church has not ever fallen short of its calling. In many cases, it has. But the ideal of biblical justice remains the ideal to which we are called to strive. And it is a better way than what the world is currently calling social justice. Jesus in Matthew 15 said that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person, makes a person dirty. For out of the heart, he said, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, False witness, slander, these are what defile a person. Jesus locates sin in the individual human heart. Social justice, on the other hand, sees the sin of injustice as fundamentally a state issue, not a heart issue. The problem is society, not people's hearts. Social justice, according to many of the definitions I found, has to do with the just distribution of advantages, resources, and privileges to groups of people living in a certain time and place under a certain government. Therefore, social justice becomes not about individuals and their sinful hearts, but about groups and their inequitable outcomes. Now again, this is not to say that injustice cannot take on a systemic shape, 
a group of individuals with sinful hearts can absolutely and have absolutely set up sinful systems, which should be reformed. The caste system in India, transatlantic slave trade, East Asian sex trafficking, and many other systems in the world were and are unjust. And Christians should be at work dismantling these systems and those like them. But as we'll see by the end of our time, while redeemed and changed hearts can work to bring about justice, including systemic justice, it doesn't actually work the other way. If calls for justice and even well-intentioned efforts to work toward it, if these calls are based on faulty assumptions, they cannot fully succeed in bringing about the change they desire. True justice requires a changed heart. So let's get into the nitty gritty of the differences between social justice and biblical justice. This morning, we're going to look at three main areas. There are many more, but this morning, we're going to look at three areas through which we can highlight the difference between these two worldviews and see as we go through them. That social justice, as we've defined it, is simply insufficient when compared to what the Bible has to say about justice and God's good plan for it. So first, we're going to look at how people are divided up in the world. You know, the old, there are two kinds of people in the world, creamy peanut butter people and crunchy peanut butter people, or Elvis people and Beatles people. We're going to look at how social justice theory divides people up and how the Bible divides people up. Second, we're going to look at how each kind of justice deals with the idea of power. And third, we're going to consider the concept of truth, where it is, where we can find it, and what we can do with it. Then, after we look at these three areas, we'll sum up. We'll talk about justice, what real justice is, and how we as Christians might work toward achieving it. So, The first area in which we can see the distinction between biblical justice and social justice is in the way these two systems divide people up. In the Bible, it's pretty simple. In the Bible, there are two kinds of people in the world, but they're not Elvis people and Beatles people or creamy peanut butter people and crunchy peanut butter people. In the Bible, there are two kinds of people, sinners and Jesus. Romans 3 lays this out for us. What then? Asks St. Paul, after having laid out the advantages Jews have in being God's chosen people, are we Jews any better off, he asks? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one is righteous, he says. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Now, certainly we know that in Christ, we are called righteous, but this is an instance of what theologians call imputation, 
Remember, Abram's faith, Paul tells us, is credited to him as righteousness. Imputation is the act of ascribing a characteristic to someone who does not, by nature, have that characteristic on his or her own. So on account of his finished work on the cross, Jesus' own righteousness is imputed to you. It becomes yours, but you do not have it on your own. Outside of Christ, no one is righteous, the Bible argues. Period. No one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So in the biblical view, we see impartiality. All of humanity shares a common identity marker. Sinners under the law of God. Now, of course, even that is secondary to the first identity marker that every human being shares, that of being created in the image of God. And then, in Christ, all of redeemed humanity shares even another common identity marker, washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. But the dividing line is still the same, sinners and Jesus. It's just that we redeemed are now hidden in Christ. Social justice, on the other hand, doesn't divide people up into sinners and Jesus. Social justice theory divides people up into oppressors and oppressed. In a social justice schema, every possession is taken at the expense of someone else. In their book called Is Everyone Really Equal?, Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo show a grid that's called Group Identities Across Relations of power. Now, we're going to talk about power more explicitly in a minute, but it's worth thinking about this now because it's illustrative of how they and social justice theorists like them divide the peoples of the world into groups. And to be clear, Sensoy and D'Angelo's chart is just one of many. This is not an idea that's unique to them. The chart, if you can envision it, has three columns a minority or target group on the left and a majority or dominant group on the right. And among the minority groups are peoples of color, the poor, women, transgender people, non-Christian religious people, disabled people, and so on. These are the oppressed groups. In the right-hand column are the corresponding oppressor groups, white people, upper-class people, cisgender men, heterosexuals, Christians, the able-bodied, and so on. And down the middle, between the two, are the isms, the injustices that the oppressor groups are thought to, by definition, perpetrate on the oppressed groups. Racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, religious oppression, etc. This is, by the way, where the concept of privilege comes in. The oppressor groups are able to oppress because of the privilege that they are afforded by their power. White privilege, male privilege, and so on. The privilege leads inexorably and inevitably to the oppression. This is what my friend called studied partiality. Making thoughtful, intentional distinctions between people. And this, of course, is a far cry from Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. That his children be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, dividing people up like this into oppressors and oppressed by discrete character traits is not biblical. The Bible does talk about groups of people being involved in a particular sin. 
for instance, the rich oppressing the poor and Jews mistreating the Samaritans. We do see this in Scripture. And we can speak in similarly broad terms when addressing what we take to be contemporary expressions of societal or group sin. These things do exist. But the Bible does not accuse individuals of sin simply on account of their characteristics or by their mere membership in a group. Neil Shenvey, a born-again theoretical chemist, which is how I hope to be described one day, a born-again theoretical chemist who has become a go-to source on the apologetics of biblical justice versus social justice, says that dividing individuals up into oppressed or oppressor groups, quote, assumes an adversarial relationship between individuals that is profoundly antithetical to Christianity. It depends crucially on differentiating identity groups into oppressor and oppressed. Conversely, he continues, if all human beings shared some fundamental identity marker, that fact would severely undermine the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed. Yet Christianity, he says, offers not one but three of these fundamental identity markers, which are shared by human beings across lines of race, class, and gender. According to the Bible, all human beings are made in God's image. All human beings are naturally dead in sin. And all human beings need salvation in Christ. The clearest biblical explication of this idea is what we just read from Paul in Romans 3. But there's a flip side for Christians too, right? There's the all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there is good news. St. Paul writes about it in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul here, on account of and in Jesus, breaks down all the normal ways of dividing people up by ethnicity, by socioeconomic status, by gender. Now, there may be others, but no matter how many ways we can conceive of to try to break people up, to divide people up, Paul's assertion is clear. In Christ, we are all one. Second, the second area in which we can see the clear distinction between biblical justice and social justice is in the location and use of power. We've seen this a little bit already in Sensoi and D'Angelo's oppressed oppressor grid, that chart. The oppressors wield power over the oppressed by nature of their characteristics. Therefore, in the social justice scheme, power is necessarily corrupting. Anyone with power has it because of privilege and thereby becomes an oppressor. But there is one power wielder that I think it will be especially important for us to talk about as we investigate biblical justice. That power wielder, of course, is God. Now, as we talk about God, I want to define a term for you, the term hegemony. Now, hegemony in its Simple definition just means leadership or dominance, especially political. The example I found online, I think this was dictionary.com, was Germany was united under Prussian hegemony after 1871. That's what hegemony means. It's a, it's a, a dominant political situation. 
But in terms of social justice, we'll need to be more specific about our term. Because we're talking about society, that is culture, we need to talk about cultural hegemony. Cultural hegemony is the idea associated particularly with an Italian thinker, Antonio Gramsci. This is the idea that the ruling class can manipulate the value system and the norms of a society so that their view becomes the worldview. In other words, the powerful people in a society, that is, the privileged oppressors from our chart, get to impose their norms, what's normal for them, on all of the rest of society. And these norms, of course, are oppressive by their nature. So when we say things like, that's the way things are supposed to be, or that's normal, or even that just makes logical sense, social justice would want to accuse us of perpetuating the norms of the oppressors, the powerful. And that's why we saw Christians listed as one of the oppressor groups on Sensoy and D'Angelo's list. Christians, you might think, since when have Christians had any cultural power? Now, social justice theory would want to say that our current norms, especially in the West, are the long-lasting results of a previous Christian hegemony. Things like heteronormativity and the centering and celebration of the nuclear family. And that's part of it. But the real reason that Christianity finds itself on the list of oppressors And why ultimately Christianity will find that social justice theory must ultimately come against it is that our faith is built on the existence of a totally hegemonic power. The ultimate hegemonic power. We worship an almighty God. A God who has the temerity to say that he made the world, that there is a way that things ought to be, and that he will brook no dissent. This is completely unacceptable to a system of social justice that sees the exercise of hegemonic power as unjust by definition. In a social justice schema, God himself becomes unjust. And yet that is the unequivocal witness of the Bible. Imagine how a social justice theorist would react to the book of Job. Job is left open by God to awful tortures. And when he finally gets up the courage to ask God about his struggles, God basically says, who are you? How dare you question me? Who is this, says God in Job 38, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. It goes on like this for two whole chapters. I won't read you the whole thing. Culminating with God saying to Job in chapter 42, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then, against what any social justice theorist would advise, Job submits himself to hegemonic power. Behold, Job says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. In Christianity then, hegemonic power is not an unjust weapon that oppressors wield over the oppressed. For us, hegemonic power can be good, right, and true. It is sourced in the law of God. And here again, we see the distinction between impartiality in the Bible, that God has authority and power over everyone, and the studied partiality of social justice, that by looking at someone's characteristics, we can determine who has power and who does not, and work to take it away from those who do and give it to those who don't. That's not a Christian idea. In Christianity, a faith in which we acknowledge an almighty creator God, hegemonic power is what our God wields over us by right. It is not unjust. In fact, quite the opposite. God's decisions in his power are the very definition of justice. Okay, so we've looked so far at what the Bible says in opposition to what social justice theory says about how people are divided up in the world and what it says about the source and use of power. Finally, now we're going to look at truth. And again, much like the dividing up of peoples, we're going to find that the Christian view of truth is very simple and that again, Jesus stands in a category by himself. In John 14, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his departure and promising that he will go ahead of them, preparing a place. And then he tells them that they know the way to where he is going. And Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's the Bible's teaching on truth. It is Jesus. Truth can be found by immersing yourself in his teachings and life, both law and gospel, commandments and promises, and recognizing again that truth is universalizing. God's law is the impartial judge of all, and Christ's gospel is available to all. All have sinned, all need a savior. That's the truth. There are other truths, of course, but the other truths flow out of the existence of God who reveals himself to us in the Bible. Social justice theory, on the other hand, teaches that truth is specially accessed by oppressed peoples. You can hear this in advocates calling for submission to the lived experiences of the people who fit the categories on the left side of Sensoy and D'Angelo's chart, peoples of color, the poor, women, transgender people, non-Christians, disabled people, and so on. These people, by virtue of their oppression, are special accessors of truth. And people who do not fit into these categories need to be quiet and listen. Again, this is not the Bible's teaching. 
Social justice once again employs a studied partiality. Only certain people, by virtue of their standing in the social order, have trustworthy access to real truth. Anyone else making truth claims is merely doing so to preserve their privilege and power. The Bible, however, is, again, impartial. God says that the truth exists outside of you, whether or not you are oppressed. There is not your truth and my truth. There is truth, and it is objective and discoverable by anyone. Indeed, it is found in God himself, revealed to the world in Christ Jesus. Jesus is, by his own attestation, the truth. So, that's been a lot. And there's a sense, I know, in which it just scratches the surface. We've looked at the ways in which the biblical witness talks about justice by how it divides people up. There are two groups, sinners and Jesus. By looking at how it talks about power, God's power is hegemonic, but that's a good thing. And by how it talks about truth. The truth is sourced not in anyone's personal experience, but in God himself, as testified to by Jesus. And we have seen that these two worldviews, biblical justice and social justice, are fundamentally talking about two different things. One impartial and one studiously partial. So let's circle back to where we started. What is justice? We saw that in the Bible, justice is required of us and that injustice is a sin. So getting justice right is critical. I like how Vadi Bakum, who is the Dean of Theology at African Christian University in Zambia and author of the recent book Fault Lines, the social justice movement, movement and evangelicalism's looming catastrophe, I like how he defines justice. It's at the same time incredibly simple and amazingly profound. Justice, he says, is that God's will is done. Before we get to the rest of what Pauchum says about biblical justice, which is how we're going to wrap up our time this morning, before we get there, I want to let him summarize social justice for us. As opposed to biblical justice, what is social justice and what are its goals? Social justice, says Vadi Bakum, defines injustice as anything that produces or allows an inequitable outcome. Therefore, the goal of social justice must be the forcing of equitable outcomes, described as the elimination of all forms of oppression. So a just society is seen as a society in which oppression does not exist. Which sounds good. But remember, social justice is not about the heart of a sinner. It's about groups and outcomes. It does not submit to the biblical mandate to be impartial. It is studiously partial. And that leads to its errors. Social justice errs in the way it divides people up. Unlike the Bible, it divides people into oppressor and oppressed groups. It errs in its description of and talk about the use of power. It sees any hegemonic power, even that wielded by God, as a wicked thing. And it errs in its teaching that truth is not firm, objective, and findable by everyone, but is instead specially accessible by members of oppressed groups. And with these flawed presuppositions, 
will find that the social justice prescription for achieving justice ends up similarly flawed. In a social justice schema, remember, the goal of justice is the elimination of oppression defined by the forcing of equitable outcomes. This is achieved by a four-step process, according, again, to Vadi Bakum. First, the identification of disadvantaged groups. Sensoi and D'Angelo provide their chart as a helpful shortcut in this process. The disadvantaged groups are listed down the left-hand column. Then second, the assessment of group outcomes. Things like graduation rates, or incarceration rates, or median income over time, or life expectancy, or any of a host of other outcomes. And third, whenever there is a disparate or inequitable outcome, one assigns the blame for that. And again, Sensoi and D'Angelo aim to help. You just track your finger across the chart from the oppressed group to find the oppressing group that is causing the disparate outcome. Because disparate outcomes are always blamed on the oppression levied by an oppressor group. So finally, the fourth step in the elimination of oppression under a social justice schema is the redistribution of power and resources to redress the disparate outcomes that we found in step two. So in other words, to sum up, since social justice assumes that anything a group possesses has been taken from a corresponding group of oppressed people, that oppression can be fixed by taking that possession, whether it's power or resources or authority or whatever, taking that away from the oppressor and returning it to the oppressed people group. So that's how, admittedly simplistically, a social justice schema would identify and seek to address injustice. How about the Bible? How does the Bible define and seek to address injustice? Let's go back to Bauckham here. Remember, he already said that the Bible defines justice incredibly simply, that God's will is done. That's it. Now, turning to injustice, the Bible, Bauckham says, would define injustice as that which fails to comply with, to comport with, to rise to the level of the law of God. Again, very simple, very logical. Injustice is that which fails to comply with, to comport with, or to rise to the level of the law of God. It means that according to Bauckham, the justice that the Christian is called to desire and to work for is this, in words that you'll recognize, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's a lofty goal to be sure. How can it be accomplished? Vadi Bakum one last time. The church, he says, is about the proclamation of the gospel, recognizing that true justice must and can only come from hearts transformed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The church is about the proclamation of the gospel, recognizing that true justice must and can only come from hearts transformed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a bracing parable about justice. A servant is forgiven a great debt by his master, but turns around and refuses to forgive a much smaller debt owed to him by a fellow servant. And when the master of the servant sees that the same kind of forgiveness he showed has not then been showed to another, he has that first servant thrown in jail 
So also, Jesus says, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the kind of justice that God's prophet Micah has in mind when he says, He has told you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. But how can we, we basically self-interested sinners, become people who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with God? We're like St. Paul in Romans 7, aren't we? Unable to do the good we want to do and seemingly bound to do the evil we hate. We are, even in the church, prone to be that unforgiving servant who will deliver us, we cry with St. Paul, from this body of death. It is, as Vadi Bakum said, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's through the proclamation of the gospel that we are delivered. Real justice only ever comes by the transformation of hearts through the person and work of Jesus Christ. A good friend of mine once talked about the gospel, the good news about Christ's saving death and resurrection for sinners. He talked about the gospel as a heat laser aimed at our ice ball of a heart. Our icy hearts are the cause of that slavery that Paul talked about in Romans 7, doing what we hate and failing to do what we want. Our hearts are frozen. It's only the gospel that can melt a frozen heart. What actually happens is that when you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to live, die, and be raised again for you, outside of anything that you did, are doing, or will ever do, when you hear that, The ice ball in your heart melts and the now boiling water starts flowing out of you in every direction. When you hear that all the affirmation, all the value, all the identity and all the love you ever need has been given to you for free on account of Christ, you are free to stop seeking those things from other people and to actually begin to serve them. You actually begin to serve them. You start to do what the unforgiving servant didn't. You start to actually forgive debts. You remember how much you have been loved and so turn and naturally begin to love others. You start to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Love actually becomes impartial. Who owes you what ceases to matter. All this holiness, all this justice and mercy comes as a direct result of hearing the gospel because it is the gospel that melts a frozen heart, turning it into a boiling river of love. So examine yourself. But don't first or primarily examine your gender or your skin color or your socioeconomic status. Examine your heart. Where is your heart still icy? Where are you partial? Where does James 2 convict you? Leviticus 19, Matthew 18. Where does God's law show you to be partial? 
where it does, confess. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. He will forgive. He will redeem. He will give you a new heart. And this is the source and font of true biblical justice. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Sinners and Jesus. You are a sinner. Turn to Jesus for the first time or the hundredth. There is an all-powerful creator God who has designed the world and made all people in his image. Submit yourself to him. These things are the truth. Indeed, God is expressed in his son, Jesus Christ, the source of all truth. Don't look for truth within yourself or in any other person or group. Seek it only in him. There's another way in which I think we must examine ourselves. You'll note that I have left open the actual methods on the ground by which a Christian might seek justice in the world. I've done that on purpose. Because building on the same biblical foundation, a Christian might participate in a protest march or avoid one. They might vote for one candidate or another or advocate for the making or changing of certain laws. They might take $50 out of their wallet and buy someone a meal. They might seek a different way to feed the hungry. We must trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in the body of Christ and have a generous and even forgiving spirit within ourselves about the ways our brothers and sisters in Christ seek and work for justice. Now, of course, we might see a Christian advocating for so-called social justice in what we believe is an unbiblical way. It's okay to have a conversation about that. We must be advocates for truth, but let's do so lovingly and with care. Remember that the world and the church is full of sinners of whom we are foremost. Justice is that God's will is done. Injustice is anything that fails to comply with God's will, his law. But the only answer for our failure to comply with the law of God is the perfect sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. No amount of resource redistribution or doing the work of social justice can redeem sinful humanity. Only Jesus can do that. And that's the final nail in the coffin of this social justice worldview. There is no redemption there. There is only work. There is no gospel, only law. But we know the truth. Christ has come. He has died and he has been raised. And on his account, God's will, his justice, will be done. We pray that we can be participants in it. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Make us agents of your justice, proclaiming humanity's common guilt under your law and common salvation in your gospel. We know that the kingdom we pray for has been inaugurated by Christ's accomplishment on the cross and by his empty tomb. Remind us that outside of him, justice is impossible. Remind us that in him, it is guaranteed. Help us faithfully to proclaim this good news. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.